Get your Bibles, get ready. Brother Crow, come preach for us. Well, good evening. Thank you so much, Pastor. It's so wonderful to be here. Appreciate all of you, your faithfulness. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed this meeting for many reasons, but one of them is this. You are proof positive that you can still have a good meeting in the year 2022. Amen. People are coming to your path. Well, do people show up? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell you something that I told your pastor. I appreciate the premium that many of you put on preaching. Here's the Bible command. Despise not prophesying. What does it mean? Well, the word despise means to count it as, as something of little value. Okay, We're living in a culture today that doesn't put a premium on the preaching of the Word of God. But many of you do, and I just want to say you are to be commended for that. Thank you so much. Find the Gospel of Mark in your Bibles, please. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 in the Word of God this evening. Mark chapter 10 in the Scriptures. Mark chapter 10 will direct our attention to verse 17. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. If you're able to stand, I would invite you to stand with me as we look to the Scriptures together. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. The Word of God says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running, and kneeled to him and asked him, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, All these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Father, help us to understand exactly what it is that you have for us in this passage tonight. I pray that you would help me to be plain and clear as I preach and I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would just reach down and speak to all of our hearts. Lord, every one of us is at a different place in our spiritual life. And yet your word, regardless of where we are, your word has exactly what we need. And so I pray that your word would meet those needs tonight. And I pray that we would be open and receptive to the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. Many years ago, I, in a moment of weakness, decided that I was going to sign up for the soccer team in our Christian school. It was just yesterday that Pastor Bishop and I were, in, were invited to go to Herndon. Actually, I invited us to go to Herndon, but we met there with Pastor Pittman. And there, the, uh, the Temple Baptist Church is in the process of building a, a new facility. And so we got to walk around the new facility. I just got to tell you, for an evangelist, uh, I love Pastor Pittman. I love the guys he has on staff. I've been to his church before. I appreciate his church. But 
for an evangelist, there's little more, there's little in life that is more boring than walking through an unfinished building. That's just me. Now, some people love that kind of thing, and that's fine. For Pastor Pittman, it represented uh, hours, indeed weeks of, and probably years of fasting and prayer. And they're, they're trying to move forward, and the miracles that God has wrought for them are absolutely amazing. But one of the things Pastor Pittman wanted to show us, he wanted to take us out to the back, and he said, now, if you go over this 19-foot wall here in this area here, we will have our soccer fields. Now, I didn't have the heart to tell him this, Pastor. Maybe this is why he's never invited me to preach at his church but I'm just not a fan of soccer. You know what? If you're a fan of soccer, that's fine. And uh, if the people in third world countries, if they enjoy soccer, well, that makes sense to me. I mean, you get four sticks and you put a two on one end and two on the other, then start kicking a ball around and you've got it. I mean, that's fine. For a developing nation, uh, that's that's fine. But the United States is not a developing nation. We, we can manufacture football pads and we can manufacture a basketball goal and those kinds of things. And so, you know, if, if, the, if, if the people in the third world countries want to play their soccer, that's fine. But, uh, you know, the World Cup is coming and the United States is going to be in the World Cup, I suppose. But uh, we all know they're not going to win. We know that Ghana is going to eliminate them or maybe it's going to be Germany or maybe it's going to be France. So, I mean, why don't, why don't we just stay in our lane and stick to what we know? And I'm a, little, I'm a little concerned about something that calls itself the World Cup. That just smacks to me of Antichrist, Pastor. I just don't know. But I think that soccer will indeed be one of the means by which the Antichrist brings about a one world order. At any rate, I, I decided that I was going to go out for soccer. Now, I didn't have a background playing soccer, as a matter of fact. I'm not that great an athlete. Anything that I've ever done athletically, I've had to work really, 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 really hard for. But I do play a little basketball and uh, and uh, and some other things. And so, so I decided I would go out for soccer. Well, the soccer season started, and we had one of those coaches that, in the month of August in South Carolina, said, "All right, it's time for soccer practice." And we all gathered at the field. And as I was looking around, I had this fundamental misconception in my mind. And that misconception was soccer practice would involve some kind of a ball. I had that misconception. Now, the truth is soccer practice eventually included a ball, but not the first day. And not the second day. And not the third day. Nor the fourth day. Nor the fifth day. As a matter of fact, we were out there. Now, you got to understand, this is not Northern Virginia that I'm talking about. I'm talking about upstate South Carolina. It was a nice, cool, balmy 98 degrees there, the August sun. And uh, and we all we did was run. And we ran. We ran laps around the field. We started in the goal, and we sprinted to the other end, and then we came back, and then we then we got, were allowed five full seconds to catch our breath, and then we had to sprint to the edge of the goalie box and turn around and come back, and then to midfield, and then to come back, and then to the other goal and on and on and on and then we were given 10 full seconds to recuperate and we were told to run another two laps around the field and so it went and I thought man these, this soccer guy is going to kill me He's absolutely going to kill me. And, uh, and you know, but eventually they got out balls and they got, we were, I, I was, had to learn all the basics. I didn't grow up playing soccer. I just didn't do that. We worked in my dad's business when I was a boy. That's just what we did. I was a whole lot richer, a whole lot less talented athletically, but I had a whole lot more money than they did. And that, that was kind of cool when I was a youngster. But anyway, I learned, oh man, I learned all kinds of things. I learned when you're offsides. I learned what that means. I learned how to throw the ball in. 
in properly. I learned how to watch the rotation because you got to get those arms even. They got to be straight and all of that. I learned what, what I learned does slide tackle. And in South Carolina, I learned it doesn't matter if the game's on the line. You don't slide tackle in a fire ant hill. They don't teach you that in all, in all soccer programs, what they did in South Carolina. And so on and on my education went. And man, I, I worked hard at it. I tried to learn the rules. I tried to learn all the plays. I tried to learn all the positions. I tried to learn exactly what we were planning to do in every situation. And I, I just worked as hard as I possibly could. My children, my especially, especially my two grown children, love to see pictures of their father in his seventh grade soccer uniform. Because those were the days when we had vertical stripes. Now, I'm told that vertical stripes make you look thinner. Can I tell you of all the needs that I had in seventh grade, looking thinner was not one of them, okay? I mean, the stripes had, they, there were supposed to be several on the front. I think I had a grand total of three or maybe four, you know, and I, I looked like I had just escaped from Auschwitz and was now endeavoring to play soccer. And so my kids loved to laugh at that, but it was in that, in that physical frame and in that, in that sort of state of mind that I went out for soccer. And, uh, and you know, I, I worked so hard in the practices, and, uh, but I never got much playing time because I just wasn't good. There were other people on the team, and they were, they were just, they were better than I was, and, uh, there's just no two ways about it. They were just better, and so they got playing time. But I remember one particular tournament, I did get to play. And I remember I was on the sideline, the coach and all of our team is over here, and uh, man, it was a goal kick, they just booted the ball, it came past center field, and I was right there, and I trapped that ball and laid it right down with my feet perfectly in front of me, as if I had just walked off of any FIFA competition. As a matter of fact, my coach was a little bit taken aback, he had never seen anything that skillful from me. I was surprised too, but I tried to hide it as best I could. But then, after I had trapped the ball and laid it down perfectly in front of me, then the fundamental, indeed fatal, weakness of my soccer career presented itself. Because for all that I had learned in the game of soccer, for all that I had mastered in practice, and for all the pounds that I had lost running all that time, there was one thing that I was never able to execute on the soccer field. And that was, I could not get the ball placed properly on my foot. Which means, I couldn't kick a soccer ball. Now, you understand that's a career-killing problem in soccer. If you can't kick the ball, it begs the question, what are you doing here? Okay, that's a valid question. Now, I could pass with the instep of my foot, and I was very accurate. But now, here in this game, I mean, it was crunch time. Everyone's eyes were on me. I had dropped the ball right in front of me, and any sensible person would have elevated it, gotten it up over the heads of the defenders, led the led the, the striker and to, to go in and, and uh, to attack the goal. That just made sense. It made sense to me, too, in my head. But I knew, I mean, I could put my toe on the ball, but that was going to really hurt. Ask me how I knew that. And so I thought to myself, oh, no, I know where the ball's got to go. But there's one thing holding me back. So there was a defender running straight at me. And I reared my right leg back a long ways, and the, the defender thought to himself, now you got to understand, he was maybe in the ninth grade, he thought to himself, oh, this is going to hurt. So we went like this, ah! 
Now, you're not supposed to do that, but that's what he did, all right? But it was a fake. I didn't kick the ball. So I ran back again. This time, the defender had been fooled once, so he was a little less... uh, he was a little, a little bit different attitude, and so he came out, and uh, he went like this, and then finally my other teammates realized, Paul can't kick a soccer ball. He's executed this beautiful trap, but it's all a ruse. Now that it's at his feet, he can't do anything with it. He can pass it from here to the corner of the auditorium, but that's about it. As far as elevating the ball above the defenders, he doesn't have the skill to do it. And uh, and then it wasn't long after that that the coach pulled me out of the game. And the coach brought me over there, and, and with all of the tenderness and kindness that they used to use back 35 years ago, he looked at me and said, Paul, what are you doing? I don't know if coaches still talk to their players that way, but that's just the way it was back then. And you just had to, just had to learn to deal with it. You just had to man up. I mean, <laughs> prepared you for a boss or maybe for marriage. But anyway, uh, he said, Paul, what are you doing? He said, you had a beautiful trap. The ball came to you, man. You just controlled it right there. But then you didn't do anything with it. You faked and you faked again. Then finally one of your other teammates had to come bail you out. What are you doing in there? Well, I didn't want to be a smart aleck, but I thought to myself, coach, I'm not sure what I was really doing in there. And I never did tell him that one thing kept me from being a soccer player. Now, in this passage of Scripture, we find a very interesting man. And we find that one thing kept him from being right with God. Now, I would like us to look very carefully at this passage of Scripture. I would like us to just examine this man. I would like us to see what's going on here in this passage of Scripture. I want you to notice, number one, there is a request in verse 17. Now, i got to tell you, as verse 17 starts out, it introduces us to this gentleman. I like him. Notice what it says. The Bible says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running. (laughs) I like that. You know what it means? Here's a fella. He finds that Jesus is in town. He understands that Jesus is headed through town. And he says, no, no, I'm not going to let Jesus leave this town before I get to him and ask him something that is very important. I like the fact this guy comes running. I like that he's got a little bit of get up and go. God deliver us from a from an indolent generation that just sits around and does nothing all day. God, listen, in the summertime, young people in the summertime, you ought to discipline yourself and say, I'm going to spend at least six hours of every day out of doors and not look at a screen. That help you. That help you. I mean, when summertime comes, uh, you got to play video games. I understand the world we live in, but I understand too that you need to get away from the screen. You need to learn to do something with your hands, even if it's tear down the neighbor's bushes. Don't don't do that and don't tell them I told you to do that, but do something. Okay? When I was a boy, we built the ugliest tree house that has ever been constructed on planet Earth. But we were doing something. Thank God we never fell out of it, but I sure do pity the man who cut that tree down years later. But uh, at any rate, that's what we did. I'm simply saying, here's a man that ran to the Lord Jesus. 
And let me tell you, you're going to have to have some get up and go if you're going to do anything in life. I don't care if it's spiritual. I don't care if it has to do with your career. I don't, ha- I don't care if it has to do with your uh, w- w- whatever it is. You're just going to have to get up and do it. This man had a little bit of get up and go to him. The Bible says Jesus was gone forth into the way. It looks like Jesus is on the road. looks like he's fixing to head out of town. And this man comes running. All right, well then notice he came running and kneeled to him. Oh, I like that. I like that. I like a man that understands Jesus Christ is Lord and uh, it is proper for me to humble myself before Him. It is proper for, for Him to be the master and I to be the servant. And so the Bible says He came and He kneeled down before Him. I like Him so far. He ran, He kneeled, and then the Bible says He asked a question. Notice the question. He asked Him, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, there's a lot of us, we who know, we who have read the entire Old Testament, we might be tempted to throw stones at this guy. We might be tempted to say about this guy, well, he should have known you can't do anything to be saved. He should have known that salvation is not by works. Okay, you know that, I know that, but I'm, I'm willing to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. And I'm willing to do that for this reason. Maybe he hadn't heard Jesus speak very much. He certainly didn't have the epistle of the, to, the, to the Romans. He certainly didn't have the epistle of Galatians. He certainly didn't have the rest of the New Testament. So he's coming and uh, I'm willing to give this guy the benefit of the doubt with this request. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because when he came and asked this question, his question had to do with eternal rather than temporal life. That's a positive thing. He says, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Can I tell you why that's a positive thing? We're living in a world that is so caught up with the things of this world that we, we can't get anything heavenly done. There's a, man, I, there's a man whose books I enjoy. He's not an independent Baptist, but he's, uh, I, I read a quote from him just today. He was talking about giving. He said, I am convinced that the greatest barrier to Christians being givers is the idea that this world is our home. I think he's right. I think he's right. And here this guy, this guy wasn't talking about how to make his investments go up. This guy wasn't talking about how to have a better house. This guy wasn't talking about bid my, uh, bid, bid my, my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. So other people asked the Lord Jesus about similar things. But no, he was concerned not with the things of this life, but the things of eternal life. So as I look at verse 17, he doesn't have all his uh, theological I's dotted and all of his T's crossed, but he, he does, I, I, I like him so far. And so verse 17, there's a request. I want you to notice verses 18 and 19, there's a response. Then look at what Jesus says. Jesus said unto him, now stop right there. I would think that Jesus might answer his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe he would explain to him, well, salvation is not through doing things. Salvation is a matter of believing. But maybe he would uh, set him straight on that. But I would expect him to answer this fellow's question. But that's not what Jesus says. Notice, he, he responds with a question of his own. The Bible says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. 
Now, the Lord Jesus is not nitpicking. He's not trying to just one-up him or anything like that. But the Lord Jesus is trying to make a very important point. Here this man has come to the Lord Jesus and he said, You're a good master and I want to know some information. What do I have to do that I may inherit eternal life? And the Lord Jesus says, Okay, before we can answer that question, we've got to lay a groundwork. Why do you call me good? Now, I want to tell you why that's so important. If you don't recognize who Jesus is, you can never be saved. There's a lot of people in this world that want to say, well, you know, the Lord Jesus, he was a, he was a good man and he died in a worthy cause and he was a good teacher. Well, wait a minute. If that's all you believe about Jesus Christ, you can never be saved. You can never be saved. The Bible says in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's what the Lord said. And so you have to believe that Jesus Christ is God in order to be saved. What was the Lord Jesus saying? The Lord Jesus was saying, listen, you got to understand exactly who I am. I'm not just another Jewish teacher that's appeared on the scene that's going to give you some sage wisdom about life. That's not who I am. Why callest thou me good? You see, the the Lord's response gave a question of definition. He said, there's none good but one that is God. Now, what Jesus was trying to get him to admit is this. If you really, really believe that I'm good, you will understand that I am also God. That's what Jesus Christ was trying to get him to admit. So there's a question of definition in Jesus' response. I want you to notice there's also a question of duty. Look at verse 19. Thou knowest the commandments. Now, interesting, he doesn't give all ten commandments. He just gives the commandments that have to do with man's relationship to man. So let's notice here, the Lord Jesus is summarizing. He's kind of paraphrasing, if you will. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. So the Lord Jesus is laying out the commandments in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, that have to do with man's response to man. And by the way, let me just say, the, the Ten Commandments, that'd be a perfect way for us to live. Now, we can't do it, but man, anybody that forms their government and their society on the Ten Commandments is going to go far in this world. Uh, there, all you have to do is cross the river here and you won't have to go far before you see all kinds of references to Moses and references to the Ten Commandments and references to the fact that our laws are based upon the laws of Almighty God. I've just finished reading an excellent book on that subject. Uh, I've talked to some of you about it. You understand what it is. And uh, if you want to know... Just go talk to the people that I've talked to, all right? That's what we're going to do. But the reality is, here, here, is a, here is a great way of dealing with other people. So Jesus says, you're not supposed to commit adultery. You're not supposed to, to kill. You're not supposed to steal. You're not to bear false witness. You're to defraud not. That's an interesting one. That's sort of a divine summary of some of the other parts of the law. Defraud not, the Bible says, and honor thy father and thy mother. So, this man, this man is coming to the Lord Jesus and he's saying, okay, I want to do something to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, okay, first of all, first of all, you got to recognize who I really am. There's only one that's good, and if you really believe I'm good, then you also understand that I'm God come in the flesh. Amen. But second of all, what does the Bible say? 
What's the Bible say? You know the commandment. So there is, there is a request in verse 17. There's a response in verses 18 and 19. And then there's a report in verse 20. A report. Let's look at the report. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. Now, I kind of like this guy in verse 17. But when I read verse 20, I, I wonder if maybe I should change my mind about it. You mean to tell me, sir, that there has never been a time when you dishonored your father or your mother? There has never been a time when you've defrauded. There has never been a time when you've borne false witness or stolen. Maybe you haven't murdered anybody, killed anybody. Maybe you haven't committed adultery. But, I, oh man, I just, I just don't know. All these things have I kept from my youth up. I just don't know. All of a sudden, this guy is looking a whole lot more and more like a lot of people that I talk to. He's, he's sounding a whole lot more like folks that I've seen not only in the United States, but all over the world. Amen. Folks that want to justify themselves. So the report is, I'm doing all the outward things right. What more can God want? That's essentially what he's saying. The things that the Lord Jesus has mentioned are all outward, visible actions. You can see them. I can see them. And so he has said, I'm doing all of these things. Let me tell you, there's a lot of people that in their heart of hearts, that's the way they respond to God. They come to God and they say, okay, Lord, I'm doing all the outward things right. Hey, maybe you're sitting in a Lighthouse Baptist Church and you think to yourself, you know, I've got my tie on on a Wednesday night and, uh, and, and I, I show up to Sunday school and I show up and I put something in the offering plate and I sing when we're supposed to sing and all of that. And I try to memorize the scripture, that great big long passage that the, that the, that everybody is working on. I try to, I try to memorize that Proverbs chapter three passage and I, I, I'm doing all the outward things. Can I tell you something? Christianity in relationship with God is not primarily the outward things. Now, they ought to show up. But Jesus was focusing on the fact that Christianity in a relationship with God is something on the inside. Amen. That's what he's focusing on. So the report is, all these things have I kept from my youth up. I want you to notice, there's a revelation from the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. There's a revelation, first of all, of love. Because the Bible says, then Jesus beholding him, loved him. Isn't that something? That touches my heart. That touches my heart because sometimes we think of people who are, who are filled with self-righteousness and think that they're a good person. That we, we think that can be a kind of a despicable thing, especially when we see hypocrisy there. And you know what the Lord Jesus saw through this man? The Lord Jesus understood the whole thing. The Lord Jesus wasn't trying to wreck his life. But as he looked at him, the Bible says he loved him. He looked at him and his heart was moved. The Bible says that Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And then the Bible says, this is not only a revelation of love, but it's also a revelation of lack. Look what it says in verse 21. He says, one, and Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest. Now, if I were to have to give this, uh, this, this message a title tonight, I would call it one thing. Because that's what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture. 
Jesus said, as far as salvation is concerned, you've got everything ready, you've got everything there, but there's one thing that you're missing. Now notice, notice what he's saying. We have to understand this very carefully. Look at verse 21. One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. Whoa, you say, Brother Paul, you mean to tell me that if I sell everything and do the Mother Teresa thing and move to India or somewhere else across the world, that, uh, that that's the way to be saved? That's not what I'm saying at all. And hear me, that's not what Jesus is saying. You understand, Jesus knows you and he knows me. He knows who we are. He knows what causes, what motivates us, what causes us to tick, if you will. He knows our mindset. He knows our thinking process. And he knew this man's thinking process. So the Bible says, Jesus looked at him and he said, there's one thing that's holding you back. And for this man, the one thing was, the Bible said he had great possessions. So there was one thing. This man had come to the Lord Jesus and he said, Lord Jesus, you can have it all. I want to have eternal life and whatever I have to do, I'm willing to do it. Jesus said, okay, what's the law say? You, you know the law, the Old, the Old Testament law, those outward commandments. And the young man said, I've done all these things. And Jesus said, all right. But there's one thing that's holding you back. For this man, are you listening? For this man, what was holding him back was his love of material possessions. What what the one thing was is not so much the point in this passage of Scripture. The point in this passage of Scripture was it was one thing that was holding him back. Now I want to ask you tonight, this is the last service of this revival meeting for the year 2022. But I want to ask you tonight, what's holding you back? What is the one thing? Maybe I'm talking to someone and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Maybe you've heard the gospel story before, but you've you've never just taken that step. You've never just taken that plunge and done it. Sometimes people get sometimes people trip over the simplicity of the gospel. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 18 verses 2 through 4, uh, uh, the Bible says Jesus is speaking to his disciples, except a man be except you be converted and become his little children, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. See, here's what a lot of people think. A lot of people think, well, in order to get saved, I have to become like an adult. But that's just the opposite of what Jesus says. You see, as adults, we try to analyze things. We try to figure it all out. And we want to we wanna figure out the ins and the outs. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because we've been cheated before. Maybe it's because that we've, uh, we've said yes to something and it was a mistake to say yes to it. And so we want to we wanna come at it from every possible angle. And we want to just an- analyze it to absolute death. But that's not the way a child does it. The way a child does it, the child just simply trusts. A child just simply, just simply comes. I mean, when I threw my little children up in the air, they didn't say, oh, now, Daddy, I want you to stop because I want to just uh, analyze how much your biceps can really. No, no, they didn't do any of that. They just let me throw them up in the air. <laughs> do it again, Daddy. <laughs> and about, about time 57, oh, I don't know if Daddy can keep throwing you up in the air, you know. They didn't, they didn't analyze any of it. They just simply trusted me. Amen. And I'm going to say, that's what salvation is all about. 
It's simply placing your dependence on Jesus Christ, the Christ who died, who was buried, and who rose again and shed his blood for you. That's what we're talking about. But you know what? For some people, the one thing is the simplicity of the gospel. For some people, God may be speaking to the heart of some Christian in here. You know that you, know that the, that you need to surrender your life to Him. You know that your life belongs to God. But there's one thing that's holding you back from that next step of spiritual growth. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a family member or a relative. Or maybe it's fear of the unknown or what is it. But I want to ask you, what is your one thing? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe somebody's one thing in here is the same as this guy's one thing. And that is you love the material possessions of this world. You say, Brother Paul, you must think we're wealthy. No, you don't have to, you don't have to have the possessions of this world to love the possessions of this world. Okay? You don't have to have it in order to love it. But this guy, he had it and he loved it at the same time. And he said, I'm not willing to give this up. Maybe you're, maybe there's something that you're not willing to give up. And God has come to you and said, Christian, I want you to do this for me. I want you to surrender. I want you to do that for me. And you've just said, ah, oh, I just don't know. I, ah, I, I, and one thing is holding you back. I'm going to ask you, what's your one thing? What's your one thing? Maybe. Maybe God is speaking to your heart about, about confessing sin. And the Spirit of God has been speaking to you all week. Man, we, we preached about Achan earlier in the week. And uh, we mentioned other times when you ought, to, you ought to just be clean before God. And man, God has, been, God has been coming to you and speaking to you. And He's just been knocking on your door. And you haven't answered. And you haven't answered because there's one thing that's causing you to hold on to that sin. I'm going to ask you, what is that one thing? What is that one thing? And why not surrender that one thing to God? Here in this passage of Scripture, you know this, I know this. Salvation is not by giving, our, giving things to the poor. Salvation comes when you and I trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. Amen. We know that. But see, this man wanted to partially surrender. He wanted to give God everything except. Lord, here you can have all that I have except. Now I wonder, does that describe any of us tonight? I don't know your heart. I'm preaching to people. You've been as faithful as you can possibly be to this meeting. Some of you have brought other people. You brought uh, you brought friends. You brought I don't know. Maybe they were your enemies. I don't know who you brought, but you brought people, and I appreciate that. But right now, right now, God has another step of growth for you to take. He wants you to take another step of growth. God doesn't want you to stagnate. He doesn't want me to stagnate. He wants us to always be growing. The book of Second uh, Peter chapter 1 makes that very plain. And you and I are to be giving all diligence, the Bible says. We're to be growing all the time. That's what God wants from you. That's what God wants from me. But many times, many times, I have found in 20 years of, of evangelism, I've found that many people are like this guy right here. God comes to them, God nudges them, God puts His hand on their life, and God says, hey, won't you do it? Hey, won't you do it? And for whatever reason, one thing holds them back. I don't know where you are tonight, I'm just asking you, what's the one thing? And if you know what the one thing is, and I have a follow-up question, is it worth missing out on God's best 
because you insist on partial instead of complete surrender. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? I'm reminded of the story of Elisha. You remember the story of Elisha? He was a, he was a, man, a man of means, evidently, because the Bible says that when Elijah found him, Elijah went to this man, that uh, here was this man. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he with the 12th. If you've never been to America's heartland, you might not understand that. But in America's heartland, there are fields that are just absolutely mind-bogglingly large. And so in harvest time, you will see not one, not two, but sometimes five and six combines in the same field. One will start down this row, and then the other one will come behind him, and then another one will come behind him. And I've seen that kind of dynamic, but that only, that only takes place in the really big fields in this country. And so when I think, Brother Frank, about a guy plowing behind 12 yoke of oxen and he behind the 12, that must mean he had a big field. There's only so much time to turn up the soil, and man, you've got to get everything ready. But one day, into this field, into this agrarian setting, came Elijah, the prophet of God. And Elijah came to him at the commandment of God, and he said, Hey, he said, uh, I want you to be the next prophet. I want to anoint you to be the next prophet. And so uh, Elisha began to go with him, but he said one thing. He said, I tell you what, let me bid farewell to my parents first. I don't know, but I imagine that was a little bit of a an emotional time. So Elisha did something very interesting when he went back to bid his parents farewell. The Bible says he took the instruments of the oxen and he used those wooden instruments to kindle a fire. And then he took the oxen and he killed them and he offered them as a sacrifice, a burnt offering right there. And he used the, the instruments of, of the plow for the wood and he used the, the oxen as a sacrifice. What did that mean? Well, that meant for Elisha, there's no going back. There's no going back. Doesn't matter how much I miss mom and dad, they're not going to be the one thing for me. Doesn't matter how much I miss the administration of a large farm, they're not going to be that one thing for me. Doesn't matter how much I miss the affluence of that, of that particular agrarian society, they're not going to be that one thing for me. I want to ask you, what are you going to do with the one thing? Now, I have, I have a camp illustration that I'd like to use, but I'm going to need some help tonight. What is your name, young man, right there? Josiah? Where, where's Josiah? Who's Josiah? Raise your hand, Josiah. Ah! Come up and, here and help me, Josiah. Now, now, not so long ago, there were bread and butter pickles in this jar. As you can see, after they went to my home, after they went to the motel room, something happened, and now they're nothing but a whiff. There, there. You smell that? Okay. Now, here's what I need you to do. Can you help me with this? Yeah. Are you man enough to do this? Yeah. That's very important. Okay. You wouldn't just tell me that. No. Good. All right. Let me have your right hand. Can I have your right hand? And I want you to stick it, stick it in here. Now, don't get it stuck. Can you get your thumb in there? If you get it stuck, you're going to break this jar, and you're going to cut your hand, and you're going to ruin my... Okay, all right, that's enough. Now, Josiah, are you allergic to peanuts? Okay. Do you recognize what I have in my hand here? 
I don't know if they call this fun size. I think they call this sharing size. Now tell me, Josiah, is that big enough for you to share with anybody? No. No, I didn't think so. All right. Now I'm going to put it in here. All right. Now, Josiah, here's what I need you to do. I need you to stick your hand in there, and as best you can, grip that Snickers like a man. Can you do that? Okay. You, you did bring your man card, all right? There we go. All right, all right. Now, just, just grip it and hold it tight. Hold it tight in a fist now. Okay, there we go. Now, it's possible that Josiah could maintain his grip and pull this out of here, all right? But if he does, he might lose a little skin. And I don't know, your mother might come and say, My little cherubic boy, Josiah, you messed him up. I wouldn't want that to happen, all right? So right now, as long as he is holding on to this share size, who came up with these names? Sharing size. What kind of... Anyway... As long as he's holding on to the sharing-sized candy bar, as long as he's gripping it, he's going to have a hard time doing anything with the candy bar, right? Because his hand is in the jar. And in order to get his hand out of the jar, the easiest thing for him to do is going to be let go of that, and then he can pull it out, okay? Now, would you say that's probably a fair assessment? Yeah, that's, that's probably about what's going on, okay? We can move it around in here, but, oh, man, it's, there's not a lot of movement in there. It's, it's pretty tough. You got it? You got it tight? Okay. Now, this is the way you and I do with our one thing. We grip it, and we insist upon it, and we, and, and we, and we hold it tight, and we say, I, I just can't let this go. But this is the way our God comes when He comes to you and to me regarding our one thing. All right, Josiah? Here's a question for you. You've been in every service this week, right? You kind of know me a little bit, right? Not much, but a little bit. Here's the question. Do you trust me? Yes. You do. Are you sure about that? Because you kind of snickered and laughed a little bit when you said it. So it kind of made me wonder that maybe you didn't. All right, now here's what I want you to do. If you trust me, I want you to let go of that sharing size candy bar and pull your hand out. Can you do that? Now, just just let it be. Oh, this is going to be bad. All right, there it is. Now, the one thing is no longer in his possession, right? But here's what our God does. When you and I come to him and say, Lord, I was hanging on to that one thing, and I don't understand it, but Lord, I'm going to trust you. We may lose that one thing that we were gripping on to. But our God has a way of coming to us and replacing it with something that's bigger and better and of more value to us. Thank you, Josiah. You can go back to your seat. If Josiah had no friends before, he has plenty of them now. For those 12 and under, there will be a fellowship with Josiah down in the fellowship hall afterwards. But that's the way our God wants to do. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not getting into your personal life. I don't know where you are tonight. But as I look at this man and this story, this story has a sad ending.
it has a sad ending because when Jesus pinpointed his one thing, this man wouldn't let go. He insisted on gripping onto those possessions inside the jar. He wasn't going to be able to do anything with them. You can't take it with you. But rather than, tr- rather than trust Jesus and rather than surrender to the Lord Jesus, he insisted on keeping his hand in there and holding them tightly. Notice what the Bible says. He was sad at that saying, verse 22, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. What's your story going to be in five years? Is your story going to be one of sadness or is it going to be one of rejoicing? Can I tell you, if your story is going to be a story that brings rejoicing, it will only be because you decide whatever that one thing is tonight. Lord, I'm going to surrender it all and I'm going to give it all into your hand. One thing. What is your one thing tonight? Father, thank you so much for this time to look into your word. Lord Jesus, help us tonight. Lord, these people have been so good and so gracious to listen every night. They've just, they've just clung to your word, Father. They've, they've listened attentively, and I thank you for all that, all that you've done in their hearts. And now, Lord, I don't know everyone that's here, but I do know this, Lord. I know that for some, there's one thing. I don't know what that one thing is. But, Lord, I've endeavored to just show what can happen when we refuse to surrender to you. Lord, the story didn't have to be that way. It can be a happy story. Have a happy ending when we instead just surrender all. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. A couple questions for you tonight. I wonder who here would say, Brother Paul, there was a time and a place where I trusted Jesus as my Savior. If I were to die tonight... I know that I go straight to heaven. If that describes you, would you just slip up your hand? I know that I'm saved tonight, Brother Paul. Not a doubt in my mind. I know that I'm saved. God bless you. Thank you so much. You can put your hands down. And let me ask you this. Would there be someone here that would say, Brother Paul, I couldn't raise my hand just a bit ago. But I'm concerned about my salvation. I wonder, would you just pray for me? If that describes you, you're not sure you're saved, you just slip up your hand. Anyone like that, just slip it up tonight. Slip it up. Slip it up. All right, there's one. I've seen that one. You can put your hand down. Thank you. Anyone else to join this one? Pray for me, Brother Paul. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Include me in the prayer. Include me in the prayer. All right, here's what we're going to do in a moment. I'm going to pray. You know how we've done our invitations. It's just just going to be the same as we've done all night, all week long. If you know Christ as your Savior, maybe God has put his finger on the one thing in your heart. You know this. You don't need to confess to me. You confess to God. You're a believer priest if you're saved tonight. You confess that directly to God and have God help you with it. And have God allow you to to just let go of that and let him fill your empty, surrendered hands with something far better. But tonight, if you raised your hand, would you come? 
You're going to hear the pianist begin to play the music in just a little bit. As the pianist begins to play, you slip out. You may see other people slipping out to come forward. That's fine. But if you're not sure you're saved, you come and you take Pastor Bishop by the hand. You say, Preacher, I'm not sure that I'm saved. That's all you'll have to say. He'll have someone take a Bible and and speak to you privately. We'll have a man with a man and a, a woman with a woman. But we'll show you from the Bible how you can be saved and how you can be sure that you're saved. May we stand together, please. Everyone standing tonight. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity. Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts tonight. Lord, I don't know what the one thing is for people here, but I pray that we would be willing to surrender it to you. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.